Pluralism and rights are under threat across the world from communal violence, authoritarianism, and religious identity politics. How is the Middle East attempting to create more inclusive rights and citizenship? This podcast is part of Citizenship and Its Discontents, an initiative from the Century Foundation with support from the Henry Luce Foundation. Our research explores new approaches to rights, identity, and belonging in order to shift the policy debate about inclusion and pluralism in the Middle East and around the world. Welcome to the TCF World Podcast. This is Thanasi Kambanis. I'm joined today by Rabab al-Mahdi, Carl Sharo, Lina Atala, and Michael Wahid Hanna. Welcome, everybody. Hi. Hi. A lot of conversations that we hear in the region uh, about rights and belonging uh, begin with the question of minorities, minority rights, often Christian rights. uh, And I get the feeling that that's something that grates on a lot of your nerves. Uh, what do you make of that as the framework for talking about rights and belongings? So for me personally, obviously I come from a Christian background and I'm aware of the varying problems with with Christian rights in particular across the Middle East, but uh, because of my political preferences, that was never going to be a political vehicle for me to build my politics on. And I think that's, that's the start of the problem for me. I think once you start to frame the problem in that sense, then you become desensitized to the problem of other minorities and also towards more collective frameworks for how we guarantee rights across the spectrum, uh, including to non-sect-based groups. So if you talk about atheists or non-believers, what about their rights for in, in that instance? And that's my particular uh, kind of starting point towards talking about the subject. There's another layer to it, and I think across the region, not only in terms of Christian rights and when you talk about the other groups, these are always open to being hijacked by external interests and diaspora groups that have a kind of very specific uh, political agendas that are completely blind to the nuances of living within the Middle East. So rather than actually helping um, those groups achieve better rights, they actually contribute to inflaming the situation between different groups within the region. So to just jump in really quickly, I mean, I think there's two, there's two levels on which this happens. Uh, from my perspective here in the United States, there is the, the ways in which these issues are filtered through a polarized political environment, uh, and more often than not, uh, they're about domestic American politics. Uh, and that produces a very strange discourse um, that at times I think is right uh, in terms of what Carl is talking about, uh, in terms of a, uh, a very narrow view that, I, that often exacerbates the conditions of the very people they feign uh, to protect. So I mean, I think that's, that's one side of it. I think uh, Carl's opening position from an idealized place is right, because this is, we, we've talked about this in various places now that this is a question of fundamental rights, rights, period, uh, and rights have been stripped across the board. It is not just uh, uh, minority groups, it's a variety of groups, including various kinds of political uh, opposition. Uh, but where I begin to differ a little bit in is that there are some groups that have specific kinds of grievances that are tied to their communal identity. We just can't get away from that. Uh, so. Um, it's, 
you know, in some ways I, I find it slightly uh, removed from the day-to-day -day reality where certain groups are affected certain ways because of the community, communities that they come from. Uh, and when you ask for restorative processes or legal processes, you're asking for very specific things that affect specific groups. So you have this tension in the practical ways in which this plays out in reality. I mean, one of, uh, one of the ways in which I'd echo what Michael says is that I started off uh, in 2011 by being quite critical to uh, a discourse that defends minority rights in the context of Arab revolutions, and I was one of those people who said we need to shift the conversation from identity politics to uh, a conversation that is more centered on how resources are shared, uh, how wealth is shared, and so on. And with time, um, it, I think um, th this, this um, wh what would perhaps, uh, what I would perhaps label as uh, a certain form of political naivete developed into having to think of the extent to which the notion of the modern Arab nation state has been destabilized during these revolutions through many lenses, one of which is um, these different minorities coming forward with uh, their community-based identities and, uh, and making demands. How do we make, uh, what do we make out of these demands as uh, a progressive lot, as uh, a media that has a responsibility to engage with, with these voices in as much as they are minority voices, uh, so respecting the fact that they relate to themselves um, as a community um, and, and, and how to bring that voice to the mainstream uh, somehow. So I be wary of uh, sort of marginalizing uh, the minority discourse for the sake of a broad-based mm -hmm. uh, right discourse given the nature of the region and uh, the reality of the failure of the nation state today as it exists. I mean, I, I, completely, um, I completely agree. I think people need to start somewhere. And to assume that people need to start with a grand narrative that talks about, you know, uh, broader, uh, you know, uh, issues of humanism or, you know, the collective good might be applicable to a very uh, tiny minority. But for the majority of human beings, the, the, what they're passionate about comes from their own experiences. And if my own experience starts with being, you know, a woman or being Christian or being a Christian woman or whatever, I mean, that it, it, it is a legitimate uh, point for starting. And I don't think that this binary of, you know, it's either uh, identity politics, which has to be sectarian, or the collective good uh, at large. Actually, if anything, the collective good should be a summation of um, the, the different uh, identities. So it's the rights of the Christian and the, um, and the woman and the atheist, and, and they don't necessarily um, overlap. Uh, there are points of conflict, and this is this is actually welcomed. This we need to discuss where they intersect and where they conflict. Exactly, and this is where you know feminist theories of intersectionality can come in Absolutely. very handy. You know, they can be also sort of uh, broadened uh, a wider scope of uh, the conversation. In general. Well, that's my problem with uh, intersectionality. Where I think it's actually I, I don't understand why it's um, so fashionable now because I think, to my mind, it reflects almost the uh, sectarian mindset in the in, in the kind of Levantine uh, sense because it's very transactional in nature. We move from a situation where guaranteeing the rights is a collective in the sense when we talk about, um, let's give tangible examples, so when we're talking about um, 
the rights of Copts within Egypt, they're under representation in almost every uh, single major uh, public sector or even in sports or even in, in culture or other aspects or their inability to build churches. So when we talk about very tangible question, two on the other hand, the more esoteric level in Lebanon where it starts to talk about uh, um, dignity in a very abstract way to justify how many ambassadors you need to get that are Christian within the government. And that's obviously a spectrum. And rather than kind of for me, the starting point is that in this transaction sense, every group looks after its own interest and somehow we try to find what the intersections are. If you were to actually work in Egypt towards guaranteeing the total freedom of religion, that wouldn't only solve the Copts problem, it solved the Shia's problem, it solved the uh, Baha'is problems, and then that becomes a more tangible thing. I think I'm being a little bit provocative in here intentionally, mm. because this is a podcast, but, <laughs> but, but ultimately for me, I think the danger of this kind of fragmentary thing is it becomes purely transactional. As you scratch my back, I scratch yours. We can find common, common uh, points. But what that ends up doing, and you learn from the Lebanese experience, it tends to institutionalize this division and produce political forms that ultimately become more entrenched that are based on it. And we have 70 years of the Lebanese it, it experience doesn't have to, to represent be, that. It, it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, nowhere in the world, and historically speaking, have people gone out and said, you know, like the, the when you when you think of women and the feminist um, achievements or the women movement achievements, I mean, they started with practical needs and then you move from the practical to the more strategic. But no, I, I don't know of a case in history that was actually successful in bringing about concrete positive change where people out of the blue sat in a room and said, you know, uh, the blind uh, veil of ignorance, let's all think of the good of the world. Like you start from something that you care about. It's a, it's a, it's a puzzle. It's something that's on your mind. It's something that you experience firsthand. You work on that and then this adds up and it doesn't have to, to just be because it's based on a particular identity. It has to be sectarian. That happens when identity is rigid and frozen. So when you freeze someone into, you're just a copt but you're not a woman and you're not an Arab and you're not an Egyptian and you're not rich or poor. And this is a particular type of sectarianism actually that I think regimes try to build very much and hence the whole sort idea of, of divide, divide and conquer of the population. Yes. Citizenship and its discontents is a Century Foundation initiative that brings together dozens of researchers to explore identity, inclusion, and community in the contemporary Middle East. Our contributors conducted extensive fieldwork in the region and aimed to open a new line of discussion in the Middle East and among Western policymakers. To see our research and join the discussion, please visit the Century Foundation's website, tcf.org, and click on the Citizenship tab. You'll find our research reports, interviews, podcasts, videos, and more. I mean, you guys have brought up a lot of uh, a lot of different types of identities and types of communities. And one of the things that I think we all notice when we look at who brings up rights in the region and when when do rights matter as opposed to not registering politically, sometimes sometimes occasionally women's rights matter to outside players because it's a it's a cudgel to be used against, let's say, an Islamist <laughs> regime, uh, and sometimes. Christian rights to, to the Western countries because they are 
they view themselves as part of some Christian tradition, but they won't get so upset when it's Yazidis or mm-hmm. Shia in, in, in Egypt or, or something like this. And or Shia in Saudi. Yeah. And, and, and so, I mean, the, the, the question raised by the way you're bringing this up is, I mean, are these really the same kinds of rights? I mean, you know, the rights of women, the rights of religious minorities. What about the rights of, uh, uh, of secular people or atheists? Uh, in Lebanon, some people proposed identifying them as an 18th sect, which is, uh, how absurd is that when you think about it? But <laughs> their way of managing this, okay, if, if people who aren't religious want rights, we can give them to them as a sect called non-believers, like the Ladini sect. And that's so absurd, but that's the kind of workaround you get when, you know, in similar way they say, like, okay, women can be a sect too. You can, you know, you can be a Muslim or a woman, but maybe not both. <laughs> I mean, this is the kind of um, of consociational politics gone really bad, whereby it actually um, consolidates uh, sects that Carl is talking about. I know that this is not the only way. I mean, w- at any point, we have multiple identities. And choosing to work towards the the needs of a particular identity does not necessarily rule out that this feeds that it becomes transactional, as you were saying, or that it actually rules out that in a different uh, situation and in a different context, you work, you know, I can be unionized. So in the workplace, I'm actually a worker, but, you know, uh, at church or in the mosque, well, I am a woman. Have, have Middle Eastern autocracies done a better job than other autocracies at tricking people into thinking that rights are zero sum? That if women get more rights as women, that's possible, but then it's going to cost Muslims or Christians could get more rights, but then that's going to cost someone else. But this is where you can be quite subversive, even when you decide to work uh, with people on based on their communitarian identity. This is where also intersectionality comes in handy, because, for example, uh, when you talk about uh, how both uh, Shiites and Christians are being discriminated against, especially if they are poor, so you bring in the, the class element into the conversation, this is where you, you actually establish that there is the specificity of the community, but then there is a broad-based ba- level of discrimination that you get if you are in a context that doesn't respect rights. So you need to both understand the, you know, the, the practical uh, need to work with certain communities because it's a, a, a by sheer number, by sheer phenomenon, it is um, a community that you know needs your attention on a rights-based perspective, but also you need to bring in the 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 similarities in the kind of discrimination that different groups of people are facing just because it's uh, a place that doesn't respect any rights. So again, is both Islamists and atheists in Egypt might be facing um, major. Uh, uh, breaches on their bodily integrity, for example, when they are in incarceration. So we need to be able to speak that language a lot of the times. Now, I mean, that being said, it has to be recognized that the, the kind of narrow communal lens is often the way in which these things get raised. And so there is no politics of solidarity. I mean, it might exist at a kind of elite level, but more often than not, these things are expressed in narrow communal terms. And that, 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 can, be, um, that can be a problem. Uh, because, uh, understandably, people are worried about their kind of narrow existence and the things that are at times uh, existential. Uh, and that's a difficult climate in which to breed empathy, um, to breed that kind of broader politics. It's hard. Um, you know, politi- politics are not going to thrive in, uh, in you know, cases of 
civil war and civil conflict and civil strife. Um, that's not the kind of ideal laboratory, obviously, uh, in which to build, you know, uh, broad-based uh, alliance politics. Right? It's just a difficult environment for that kind of politics to exist. Yes, um, that is certainly true. But, I mean, you look at a country like Lebanon, where the war ended, uh, you know, in 1990, and up till now we're still perpetuating that paradigm of um, communal grievance-based politics at the expense of any meaningful uh, national movements, right? And whatever national movements have emerged have been very small in numbers, uh, although they're very promising. But if you're setting an ideal, as opposed to kind of just saying this is how things are, I would rather in that case start from a that collectivist ideal that could be all-encompassing. And within it, it could can then uh, sponsor a lot of projects that would look after the rights of uh, religious freedom and women and, and workers and etc etc but I think the, the main difference for me is framing it through this uh, minority prism or identity prism tends to be more grievance based so it's always about you know the injustices that are done against us but it doesn't put forward a positive vision for society so that gets stuck again in my experience reflecting on the Lebanese model that gets stuck in this perpetual cycle of kind of resolving grievances with no positive visions for society now let me ask you something about the, the Lebanese experience do you think that this kind of sectarian communalism is there because it was consolidated by the Ta'af agreement and who were the players and whatnot? Or is it just because the politics was communal? So if it wasn't for the big players, if it wasn't for the Saudi, wouldn't, wouldn't the uh, political system have looked uh, quite differently? Or is it... No, I think it comes from the beginning of the independence period and even goes deeper than that. But with the independence period, the way power-sharing arrangements were done, they sort of guaranteed the perpetuating of this because the, the, the kind of the way that our civil society operates is through the, I wouldn't call it sectarian, through the confessional system, which is a more accurate word, or the communal system uh, as well is that you tend to build these networks of uh, sponsorships and, and political negotiation that are ba based ultimately on your identity. Mm -hmm. And that's how the state itself is constituted. So the, the kind of the more progressive voices in Lebanon tend to see it, see it as some kind of disease, see some dis the, the sectarianism as a disease. And it's kind of almost like you can give the people treatment and they will recover. And it's not actually the case. People are being quite rational in a way exactly. because that's the way the system they operate within uh, um, uh, functions, right? It's not some kind of psychological failure, although there are bigots, there is bigotry, there's real sectarianism, there's ugly sectarianism, but ultimately the system itself guarantees the perpetuation of this. And hence it takes us back to Michael's point, which I agree with, it's about how the system is arranged and not about how people have actually worked uh, towards the right. So the fact that they uh, think along the lines of the communal prism in and by itself is not problematic it as much as the system actually yeah. makes it problematic. It's not that it's not problematic and it doesn't produce the system 
but mm -hmm. it perpetuates the system and guarantees the survival of the system. So I'll give you an example. When you get to a point in Lebanon where you get a critical mass of people who are uh, operating politically outside of that, and with that have, we've had that historically, uh, um, in every instance preceding a major breakout in violence because it was such a threat to the system that any sort of, uh, let's say, unions that are cross-sectarian uh, start to form a threat to the, to the government. They're put down very violently, which ultimately leads to a war or, or, or something similar like that. Uh, so the problem is with the current formation, this is, didn't produce a system and people working for their communal identities is actually perpetuating and ensuring the longevity, the longevity of their system. So there's a, a kind of cross-dependency between the two. Now, let me hold to this point. When you, when you were saying about, you know, uh, unions across, um, I mean, the fact that there is communal, that people have thought of their primary identities along the communal lines did not stop the possibility of forming unions, right? What actually stopped it w was how the system functions, right? No, what I was trying to say was more there are instances uh -huh. where people were trying to think of doubts out this, right? So when the unions, let's say in the late 60s, early 70s, were actually succeeding in building these uh, large movements of people that are thinking outside mm -hmm. the traditional communal frameworks, they were then crushed. But it was possible for them to think outside of those. I think it's always possible. The mm. problem is who crushes? Is it the fact that people start from a communal position? So I think the disagreement that mm. um, between the two of us is not about whether you do want something that's bigger, an overarching umbrella. What I'm saying is that the starting from um, an I identity politics of, of sorts does not necessarily preclude the possibility of collective organization for something that's, um, that transcends uh, the sectarianism. There's, a, there's also a problem of, of the history of decision-making, where we have two bad models that have been prevalent in the region. One is majoritarianism, where someone gets enough power to ram through a decision and, and be damned the consequences for the other segment of society. And the antidote has been a paralytic, the, the Lebanese model. Everyone gets veto power, everyone gets a vote, no one can trample you, but also no one can really do anything outside the confines of their specific community and that's how they get security but then there's also no ability again to, to make any kind of, of policy or politics I mean the, the one thing that I would that I would want to add uh, that I think is important beyond the systemic roots is that this um, has grown ideological justification right so for me there is a kind of there are times when we talk in the systemic we uh, evade some of the actual kind of n nasty, everyday reality that is that has bred its own kind of ideology um, so you have ideological sectarianism uh, where people just have these ideological beliefs now how did we get here was this a political tool wielded by by leaders to divide and conquer setting all that aside it's a, a longer conversation we do have to deal also with this ideological reality right this is a thing this is exi exists it's, it's been exacerbated particularly in extremis, where we have these conflicts, you know, the conflict and deprivation has made these narratives more acute. Uh, but there's an ideological d dimension that I think we can't just wholly set aside. No, in, absolutely in our, in not. Our absolutely not. We need to recognize that. And particularly in the Lebanese case, there are very formal manifestations of it. And um, there are parties that are used explicitly 
uh, um, uh, sectarian, bigoted narratives to promote themselves. And even if they tend to phrase it not in those terms, so look at Hezbollah for a long period of time, it tried to kind of represent itself as a more broader party. Ultimately, at the end of the day, it's an exclusively Shia party. Mm. And that put it in any other context, that would be seen as something quite insular and, and, and quite... Um, almost like, uh, um, I don't know what the equivalent would be in the West, but it would be frowned upon. We tend to accept these at face value. So I would certainly, from my point of view, I wouldn't kind of put the blame purely on the systemic and ignoring those dynamics. And that's why I said these two feed into each other. But then I, I also worry a lot about when, um, you know, progressive activists and thinkers think that this is, you know, communal politics and identity politics is beneath us, is that we leave it completely to the right to mobilize. So whoever claims, you know, the Coptic rights in the case of, um, of the Egyptian um, society becomes the most bigoted right wing, those who are actually going to um, consolidate all those fault lines and, you know, build the boundaries real high. And I would, you know, as a as a progressive leftist, I would actually write like to uh, appropriate this, to reclaim what is by definition ours, you know, a, a whole set of rights that starts and acknowledges that it starts from different points for different people. Well, uh, this has been a great conversation and thank you for joining us on the podcast. You were hearing from Rabab Madi, Carl Sharo, Lina Atalla, and Michael Wahid Hanna. TCF World has been brought to you by the Century Foundation, a progressive public policy think tank that seeks to foster opportunity, reduce inequality, and promote security at home and abroad. For more information about the work that TCF does, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook.